So, John chapter 8, the beginning of John chapter 8. I want to give some explanation about this passage because you may notice in your Bibles that there's some explanatory notes about this passage. This morning, I'm going to be preaching out of the New International Version. <laughs> I'm sorry, i got to interrupt myself before I go on with that. Um, it's really uncomfortable to see yourself show up in a video in the middle of the service. And it's even more uncomfortable when you wore the same thing <laughs> that you had in the video. It could not get more corny, people, than this moment right now. But it's real. So thanks for your love. Appreciate it. All right. <laughs> okay. So John chapter 8. You may see some explanatory notes in your Bibles about the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, not including the story that I'm going to be preaching on today. And that is the case. The earliest, most reliable manuscripts do not include John actually 7 verse 53 through chapter 8, 11. So I'm preaching out of the NIV today, and the way that the NIV deals with this is it sets it off and it puts this... Uh, paragraph this story in italics. Nonetheless, they did include it in our Bibles, and for good reason. So just to give you some explanation for this, um, people who study these things, what we know is that the story that we're talking about today of this woman caught in adultery is an ancient story, really as old as the rest of the New Testament, but it is a story that was getting passed around in the early church, and it didn't have a home in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And so eventually, um, people who were copying manuscripts kind of inserted it here in John, and there were some reasons why they inserted it here. But we actually have some old manuscripts that insert it into other gospels, like the Gospel of Luke. So it was a story that just kind of didn't have a home, but everyone agreed that the story happened, that it was real, and the church recognized it as inspired scripture, but they didn't think that John actually wrote it. So it may be that we're not sure who wrote this story, but nonetheless, it's reliable. It fits perfectly with the rest of the theology of the New Testament, and particularly the theology of John. And so it's right for us today to look at it as we go on through the Gospels. Now, if you're visiting with us today, you may not know this, but for the last two years, we've been working our way chronologically through the Gospels, and so today we're here on this passage, and um, Steve Rossi will be in John next week. Steve will be preaching, which I think the timing of how this all worked out is great, to be able to commission Steve and then for Steve to preach next week. So I'm going to read this passage, um, and you can stay seated today because I'm going to give some explanation as we go along, but it will be on the screen behind me, and we're going to begin right at the beginning of John chapter 8 in verse 2. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. My main idea this morning is a main idea I love, and it's that Jesus makes our shame spaces into mercy and grace spaces. Jesus makes our shame spaces into mercy and grace spaces. Now just imagine this passage with me. The context of it is that Jesus is teaching in the temple, as would have been his practice when you know, at this time when he's in Jerusalem. And so he's teaching in the temple. It's a public space. We know there's religious leaders surrounding him. And while this is going on in this public venue, this woman who was caught in adultery is dragged in and presented to Jesus. Now, right away, you should be able to notice that there's something very wrong with this passage. What is it? Well, I realize the kids are in the service with us today, so I'm going to be preaching this passage in a sensitive way, but it takes two, right? And so, where is the other guy? You know, where, where is the other person? Because it's, adultery is a sin you can't commit by yourself, not in the way that they're accusing her, but it's her that they drag in. So imagine this picture. It's terribly humiliating. There is this woman in the midst of all of these powerful men and they are accusing her of this sin and kind of exposing uh, the intimate details of her life and seeking her condemnation. But this passage lets us know the reason why this was happening. It wasn't really a search for righteousness. The reason why this was happening was because of why? Because they wanted to trap Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's a number of ways that they could have trapped Jesus in this passage. If Jesus' answer to them had been, actually, you know what, the law of Moses isn't in effect anymore. You don't need to listen to Moses. You need to listen to me. Well, it would have, it would have made Jesus a cult leader, right? These religious leaders would have accused him of blasphemy, and Jesus would have lost favor with the people. On the other side, if Jesus said, no, you're right. You know what, that is what Moses says. Go ahead and stone her right now in the temple. Well, one thing we know is that by the time this story is taking place, even though there are passages in the Old Testament that link together adultery and the punishment of stoning, by the time Jesus is, is um, experiencing this with these religious leaders, that had fallen out of practice with the religious leaders, especially in a city where sophisticated people lived. This was no longer practice. So if Jesus had just said, no, go ahead and do it, he would have looked barbaric and probably lost the favor of the people. Or this, if he had condemned her to death, the religious leaders could have gone ahead and gone to the Roman governor. It was illegal to condemn anyone to death without the governor's approval. And the religious leaders could have said, this guy Jesus is trying to overthrow you, the Roman governor. Either way, this was a very sticky situation, very easy for Jesus to say the wrong thing that would result in him experiencing punishment or falling out of favor with the people. But what does Jesus do? 
Well, first he doesn't answer. He kneels down and he begins writing. Now, there's a lot of speculation, and you can read up on this, about what he was writing. The church has some traditional answers for that. But the reality is we don't know what he was writing, right? But here's what we do know. Jesus very much in this passage is acting like a king. He, they bring this case to him, and he deliberates. He thinks before he gives them an answer. As a matter of fact, if you're familiar with some stories in the Old Testament, it might remind you this whole story of another king, King Solomon, who was given incredible wisdom. And sometimes there's these stories where these incredibly, incredibly hard cases were brought before him, and God would give him wisdom to answer in the right way, and people were astounded at his wisdom. Well, that's what's happening here in this passage. Now, I want to unfold for you very clearly what it is that happens. Jesus begins writing with his finger. The pressure is on. You know, the religious leaders keep saying, you know, no, you know what are you going to do here? You need to give an answer one way or the other. And finally, he stands up and he gives this answer to them. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I've heard this passage presented in a way that I, I think misses the point. Like, if you have any sin in your life, you can't point out the sin of a brother or sister. We know that's not true, right? Because Jesus explicitly tells us elsewhere, so do the other New Testament writers, that it is a right and good thing for us to be honest with one another. So that's what's not being said here. Neither is Jesus making light of the sin of adultery. We'll talk about that in a little bit too. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. What Jesus is doing is he is making a direct reference to the Old Testament law, particularly Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17. And here's what the law said in those places. It says, look, the punishment for this sin is death by stoning, but the first people who should cast the stone before the rest of the people jump in and and carry out the execution, the first people who cast the stone should be witnesses of the crime. It was illegal in the Old Testament for someone to be killed just with one witness. There had to at least be two who saw it with their own eyes, and these witnesses had to have kept themselves clean from the sin in question, all right? So it was wrong to be like part of the sin, to be seduced by the sin themselves, and then to say, well, you know what, I was a witness, they did it, and then to carry out an execution. Obviously, there's a problem with that, right? It's really hypocritical. So Jesus says, look, one of you that's without sin, he doesn't just mean any sin. Listen, this is stunning. He means the sin in question. Now, we know that Jesus taught, right, that the sin of adultery isn't just something that we do out here with our physical bodies, but Jesus taught even if you look at someone, right? You've committed the same thing in your heart, but I would argue that's not even what Jesus is getting at here. I think he means apples to apples. He's saying to the religious power elite in Jerusalem, okay, you want to execute her? One of you that has not committed the exact same sin you be the first one to throw the stone. And in one swoop, you know what Jesus does? Is he unveils all this secrecy in the religious leadership. He unveils all of these secret sins in the people 
who were supposed to be leading Israel to God. And I think it's notable that it says the older ones left first. Why? Because they had a lifetime of indiscretions behind them. See, and, and there's something about the ancient world that unfortunately is too true often today. I'm going to get more into this in a second. Is that we don't always apply standards of sin equally to people, right? And it was certainly the case that there was this attitude in the ancient Near East. And strangely enough, this is an attitude that has persisted to this day. That if you are a man and you are powerful, you can get away with some of this stuff. Boys will be boys, right? But if you are a woman or you are not powerful, then shame on you, right? But Jesus is saying, you all have done the exact same thing. So go ahead, kill her. But the first one needs to be an innocent person. And lo and behold, there isn't one single innocent person. Isn't that crazy? Now, here's what I see in this passage. I think there is a religious response to sin. And then I think our Savior has a response to sin. And his response to sin demands a response from us. And so on this very hot day in these last few minutes, this is where I want to take us, okay? You all are doing great. Move closer to a fan if you need to. All right. So what does a religious response to sin look like? Well, I see a few things in this passage. First of all, that it is the function of religion oftentimes to create hierarchies of sin so that some sins are definitely worse than others. Now, listen, we know that in this life, some sins are of greater consequence than others. That's just a fact, right? But in the eyes of God, in terms of judgment, which is what this passage is about, there is no hierarchy of sin, right, from one sin to another. And it's not a mistake that they are dragging in a woman who has committed this particular sin, because this is like the granddaddy of all sins, right? She messed up in this way. And so that's why the punishment is even more severe. And I would say, once again, this is something that has often persisted in the American church. It's to think that this category of sin in question is somehow worse than others. And that within this category, there's other categories that are even worse, right? Now, the problem with that is if we adopt as a faith community those kinds of sin hierarchies, it means that we create a hopelessness around certain kinds of sin. And friends, it becomes impossible for some people to get free, particularly when they feel like they've committed the granddaddy of all sins. But we have to be a place that recognizes that sin is sin. Let me give you an example. I was talking to the summer staff about this. Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament right, in the book of Genesis, if you're familiar with that story. Sodom and Gomorrah is an extraordinary story in the Old Testament because God rains fire on those cities from heaven and destroys them utterly, right? And if you are familiar with that story, you probably know that the sin seems heinous and violent and in the same category as the sin that's in question here in John 8. But what we often don't remember is that the prophet Ezekiel, actually gives us another reason why God destroyed those cities. He enlightens us some and tells us that there's more at play than what meets the eye. In Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel, strangely enough, doesn't even mention the other sin that you see in Genesis. Here's what he tells us, that this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor 
and the needy. This was one reason God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, was their utter lack of concern for the poor. But I would argue that many times in our Christian lives and in our churches, somehow that sin seems less serious than this one, right? That we create these hierarchies, you know? And many times, the hierarchies are formed around the sins that we don't commit, or at least that we want to hide, right? And we point out the sins of other people. Religion also does this. It creates people hierarchies so that some people are more important than others. And listen, this is one way that you know the attitudes of the world have infiltrated religion is when being in leadership means that somehow you get a pass on integrity. See, that's what the world thinks, that the higher up I go in the ladder, the less of a standard that I'm held to. But in the New Testament, it is exactly the opposite. What does James say? Not many of you should consider yourself to be teachers. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, I'll just speak for myself. He's saying that if God and if a group of believers give someone the responsibility of standing in front of you like this and proclaiming the word of God, I am not held to a lower standard. I'm held to a higher one. Now, why? It's not because some sin is worse than other sins. It's because of this. It's because, of, because I'm here standing in this position. My sin doesn't just affect me. It does. It's not just an offense against God. It is. But my sin has the potential to be extremely damaging to everybody in this room. You see? And so that's why God calls leaders to higher places. It is the utmost hypocrisy that in this passage, the sin that these leaders want to point out is the sin of a nobody. The sin of a woman who's not in leadership. She doesn't mean anything to anybody, and that's the sin that they want to condemn while they think that they get a pass on their own sin. Religion also does this. It sees more sin in people who are different than me. It sees sin easier in the person who is different. Remember the picture. This is a woman in a group of all of these men. And they can see her sin real clearly. But it takes them a minute to see their own. You know? And guys, this is still the case. It's always easier to see sin in people who aren't like us. Maybe because they irritate us more, we don't know what to do with them. But it's always easier to see the sins of the neighborhood that is different than the neighborhood that we live in. Right? It's always easier for the, the rich to see the sins of the poor clearer than they can see their own. It's always easier for the poor to see the sins of the rich than they can see their own. It's always easier for us to notice the sins of people who represent different cultures or backgrounds. It's like we see that clear while we don't see our own. One um, author says, uh, he's from the South, he says that in the South, demons drink sweet tea and have a southern drawl. What he's saying is, it's hard to see our demons because our demons look a lot like us, right? And the same is true for us. We, I don't know what you'd say in Western PA. Demons eat pierogies, I don't know. But listen, the way the enemy attacks us looks strangely like us. And so it's very easy to condemn people who are different than us. Religion also does this. It takes the sin of other people and uses it to bolster our own image, our own comfort, or the status quo. That's what they're doing here. They don't care about this woman. They want to preserve their own place of authority, and it exploits 
the weakness and the brokenness of this person so that they can maintain their own sense of comfort and image and the status quo. And friends, this is what we do when we talk to our friends about the weaknesses of other people. See, implicit in that is that we want to get this person that we're talking to on our side to validate our own sense of importance, our own sense of having a place. And the sin, the brokenness of someone else becomes the target of that. We exploit it to use it for our own ends. Religion uses shame. Listen, you know what shame is about? It's believing that you or someone else is exceptionally bad. That's what shame is. And here, they, they're not trying to heal this woman, they're trying to humiliate her. So they throw her into the midst of the group and they say, see, this woman is exceptionally bad. And it convinces everybody else that they aren't that bad. Now, I could go on and on, but why does religion do all of these things? Well, here's why. The center of it all, the core of it all, is this. That man-made religion has at its core using God for the needs of humans and not the other way around. See, the God that we worship is completely different from this. I'm going to tell you why. Because you know how he saved us? He saved us on a cross. Listen, if you want to use God for your own needs... You don't look to a man who was killed like a slave, condemned as a criminal, humiliated in that way at a cross. No one in their right mind looks at a cross to get their needs met. That person there ain't going to help you, right? You look at someone who looks like they have it together. But you see, what we believe is the polar opposite of religion. See, Jesus accomplishes our salvation by doing the thing that it seems would never work. You know, to die in that way on a cross doesn't make any earthly sense, but that's how Jesus accomplishes salvation for us. Now look at Jesus' response in contrast to what these people have done to this woman. I, I want to talk about his response to this sin. I think he does three things. First of all, Jesus calls it out. And he's still going to call it out. I want to point out something. This passage cannot be about Jesus having some lax attitude towards sin and towards this sin in particular. You know how I see that? Number one, Jesus never denies the law in this passage. He never tells them, no, Moses didn't say that. It, you know, he never denies it. Look, what this woman has done is wrong. And Jesus is always going to shoot straight with us. I love that about Jesus. Don't you love that about Jesus? I don't want to play games. You know, I don't want to worship someone who's going to lead me on just to tell me something later. You know, he's always going to call it out. So he says, this is wrong. Notice this. He also doesn't deny the punishment. Now, if it seems cruel or barbaric to you that the Old Testament law would prescribe death as the punishment for sin, well, you need to know this, that the New Testament does the exact same thing. Listen, what does Paul say in the book of Romans? He says, number one, that we have all sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's glory. There's not one of us in this room that has not fallen short of the glory of God. And secondly, he says this, that the wages of sin, the payment of sin is what? Death. So there it is in the New Testament. That is inescapable. Listen, God is holy and he must punish sin. And listen, I know sometimes we wrestle, you know, with a God who punishes sin, 
But if you have ever been the victim of somebody else's sin, if you've ever been the victim of injustice, you know you want a God who's going to make things right in the end. You do. The only way we can forgive is by entrusting the injustice that's been done to us to the vengeance of a God who loves us. Right? That's some of where our forgive. I want a God who is going to make things right in the end. Don't you? That's why we say every time we take communion, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, because we want him to make things right. So Jesus doesn't deny that either. He says, look, you're right. The Old Testament law says that the punishment for this sin is death. The New Testament tells us that the punishment for every sin is death. Now that's a problem. It's okay if that makes us feel kind of heavy. But then look what Jesus does. He responds in mercy. First of all, he tells this woman that he doesn't condemn her. After everyone leaves, that he doesn't condemn her. And this fits right in with the theology of the rest of the New Testament. In John chapter 3, Jesus says this, that, he, that the Son of God has come, or it's written about Jesus, that the Son of God has come not to condemn the world, but to what? To save it. So the age in which we live, friends, this is good news, the age in which we live is not an age of the vengeance of our God. What is it? It's an age of the favor of the Lord. That's the age in which we live. What does Peter say? Peter says that God is slow in reaching that point of judgment and justice. Why? So that as many as possible might repent because it is not God's will that any should perish. He is being slow on purpose to catch into the flow of his grace as many people as is possible to win the inheritance, to gain the inheritance that he has for us. You see? So he responds in this mercy. Look, I, look, right now, Jesus is telling this woman, you're sitting in front of me, but my mission, I'm not here to judge. I'll come later. I'm here now to save. And then, and then he offers, what Jesus actually does is he stands in the place of judgment. This passage is actually a picture of the cross. Just think about this for a second. Jesus has just saved this woman's life, and who has he ticked off? The people who can actually kill him. See, he's actually just written a death sentence over his own life. See, don't miss this. He just unveiled the secret sin of a whole religious club of people, and a very powerful one at that. Nothing quicker will get a group of people to want to kill you, right? So what Jesus actually does in this passage is he stands in the way of judgment. He actually flips places with her. He moves into the place of judgment, and ultimately that's going to be revealed at the cross. But lastly, as I close in these last couple minutes, I, don't want, you to notice, I want you to notice this, that Jesus also demands a response to the mercy and the grace that's being shown. And friends, we got to know this about Jesus. He will show mercy and grace all day long. But all day long, he will demand a response to it. He says, go and leave your life of sin. The mercy he shows her is that she isn't obliterated in God's wrath right then. The grace that he shows her, the hope that he gives her, is that it is possible for you to leave this life of sin. Let me speak that over all of you in this room. If you feel trapped, 
hopeless, like you're never going to get out of your sin. You need to hear this. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus stands in front of you, and there is hope and grace for you to be delivered. You do not need, friends, you do not need to pass into the next season of what God has for you with all of its blessing, with all of its fruitfulness, still holding on to the shackles of sin. Listen, I'm so glad that there are things that God will not let me carry into the next season, right? Because he wants to free me from that. You know how I can tell? George, you said this to me once, so I'm quoting you, but it resonated with me when you said it. You know, one of the ways I can tell that, that someone is walking in the grace and mercy of God, you know one of the big ways? It's not that they've shed tears over their sin. That's actually pretty easy to do especially if you have hurt relationships around you, especially if you have created a mess, you'll shed tears over your sin. Tears is not necessarily repentance. You know how I can tell, and I'll speak for myself, in my life that I'm walking in the grace and mercy of God, that my response to the grace and mercy of God is what it should be, is that I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Because when, friends, when I had a death sentence over my life, See, when I had a death sentence over my life because the law and the justice of God demands retribution for sin, when I had a death sentence over my life, Jesus came and took my place and turned the very place of my shame into the place of his grace and mercy. And if that is a reality for you, you know what? You won't go through life always demanding grace and mercy from the people in your life. See, when you know that you have it from Jesus, it matters less if people give it to you, quite frankly. You know? You'll walk in it. You'll be grateful. 